Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning, turn with me to 2 Samuel 18. We're in 2 Samuel 18. We've just sung a prayer asking God to show us Christ in the preaching of his word. And yet we're turning to a passage that records events a thousand years before the birth of Jesus Christ. In our passage this morning, there's no mention of the coming Messiah. The only son of David in 2 Samuel 18 is one that dies in ignominious death. The whole story is muddy, befuddled, frustrated. The characters, the key players in the story are frustrated at almost every turn. Almost nothing goes the way that they want it to or try for it to. There are only a few verses that say anything at all about God. And the few comments about God seem to be ignored by our main man in the story. But in every passage of the Bible, we can trace something of God's glory. And in every passage, we can see something about his Christ, the Savior, and salvation, and our need for it. And yet, not every passage of the Bible shows us Christ in the same way. Some show us Christ in more roundabout ways. Some passages require more patience to show how it applies to us. So we have not prayed in vain this morning that God would show us Christ in the preaching of his word. And yet it's a good thing that we prayed this morning for him to show us Christ in the preaching of his word from a passage like this. To properly see how any passage relates to that central theme of the Bible, the Christ, the Savior, and our salvation, we have to first understand each passage in its context. We need to ask of each passage wherever we are, when is this happening? Where is this in the Bible? What came before and comes after this story? More and more TV series are being written for binge-watching, they call it. I confessed to some binge-watching this last week while I was sick on the couch for a few days. What it means when they say that they're writing a TV series for binge-watching, in part, is that they won't begin each episode with a review of what happened before. So it used to be the, the norm. You know, 24 would begin previously on 24, and then there'd be some some little clips of what happened last week in case you missed it or just in case you forgot because it happened seven days ago. Or no doubt the writers and producers also want new viewers to be able to jump in to the middle of a series if they can. Well, we aren't binge listening to sermons in Second Samuel, are we? We're like those older TV shows that have seven days in between. And so to fully get context, we'll need to review. And besides, there are some with us today that haven't been with us at all. So let me try to catch you up to speed if that's you. Previously in 2 Samuel. <laughs> King David was a great man of God. He was God's man. But there was a 9-11 moment in his life where things would never be the same. And it was caused by no one but himself. 
On that fateful 9-11 of his life, he sinned greatly and he covered it thoroughly. God sent a prophet to confront him. And praise God, David repented of his sin and God forgave his sin. But there were going to be consequences, chastisements from God to purify his king and to humble his king for, for years to come. Starting with the death of the infant and then with divisions in his home and in his kingdom. God said the sword would not depart from his house. Well, this wasn't the first conflict or division to follow, but eventually the biggest one, the longest lasting one, had to do with his son Absalom. Absalom plotted a revolution, a coup against his father, the king. He got the majority of the army to turn against his father. He turned the heart of all Israel toward himself and hence away from his father. In chapter 15 of 2 Samuel, David had to flee the royal city with only a handful of loyal friends and soldiers. And in the chapters that follow, David is on the run. Chapter 16 and 17, he's running for his life. Chapter 17, we saw last week, shows David having close calls, nail-biting moments. It looks like David is on the losing end. God is protecting him, but just barely. We can't forget that David is not king by happenstance. He doesn't happen to be king. He is God's man. He's the Lord's anointed. He is the Christ of the Old Testament, the Messiah. That's what Christ means in Greek. Messiah is the Hebrew. So to oppose him and his kingdom is not just to oppose him as king. It's to oppose God. And yet we can't forget as well that God had promised David lifelong chastisement for his sin. And so Absalom's rebellion against his father was no small part of what God promised with a divided house. And yet also there was a limit to the opposition. Because God was behind it, there was a limit to the opposition. It was for David's chastisement, but not for his destruction. It was for David's pruning, but not for his ruin. There was a limit to Absalom's reach. And so remember from last week, we saw a hint that it's coming. Chapter 17, verse 14. The Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of that traitor, Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon that Old Testament antichrist, Absalom. God is about to bring Absalom to an end. By the end of chapter 17, God has provided for his king. He has protected his king. And he is preparing the king and his people for a battle. A battle between the Christ and the Antichrist. And now in chapter 18, we see that battle. Some of the threads of these previous half dozen chapters are now coming to be tied up. But not tied up in a nice neat bow. As the chapter unfolds today, we'll be asking ourselves, what is good news? And what is bad news? And what is God's perspective on it? There are eight turns 
in our story today. We'll read from each section as we come to it. The first section, in the first five verses, we might call it a king left behind. A king left behind. Let's read the first five verses. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out. For if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it's better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. David's army is going out in battle against the enemy. This will be Israel's greatest civil war. We're not told the size of David's army. It might be as many as 10,000. But no doubt it's smaller than the army on the opposite side. David wants to go, as he should. That's what warrior kings in these days did. But understandably so, his men insist that he not go into battle. Essentially they say, king, the enemy only cares about you. Half of us could be killed and they would still be pursuing you. If they get only you and none of us, they're done. They've met their mission. Let us go without you. On a different occasion, it was wrong for David to not go out in a military campaign. In fact, that's what started this whole spiral downward for David and his kingdom. On this occasion, it doesn't seem to be wrong for David to stay back. Especially in these later years. This is probably happening the last few years of David's life. Some scholars say probably the last year of David's life. He's an old warrior king. No emphasis on the warrior part anymore. However, it's probably not a great sign that in verse 4, David acquiesces in the way that he does. Whatever seems best to you guys, that's what I'll do. David has a passive side. Sins of passivity plague this king, and it's caused him trouble before. This is probably not a great sign. Whatever seems best to you guys, that's what I'll do, whatever you say. Even more troubling are his final words before sending the troops to battle. In verse 5, he, he ordered the generals, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And everyone heard it and knew about those orders. Now don't sympathize with David here as if he was speaking just as a father about his son. He was the king the commander-in-chief of the army. And with this order, he was tying the hands of his men. He was giving them a handicap in battle. They shouldn't have been preoccupied with the safety of the head rebel. But David is operating out of sentimentality, not strategy. 
or even sensibilities. He refers to him as the young man, Absalom. In our day, we might say something like, my boy, Absalom. Whatever you do, take care of my boy, Absalom. Whatever you do, protect my boy, Absalom. And these are the final words before battle. This is the only recorded commission of the troops. No benediction, no prayer, no worship, no sacrifice, no assurance of success. But this is sadly where David's mind is at. Not on God, not on victory, not on the safety of his men, but only on his son, who to David is only a son, not a murderous, insurrectionist, who's conspired against the Lord and against his anointed, tearing the kingdom in half. There's a king left behind. Secondly, there's a battle in the woods. A battle in the woods in verses 6 through 8. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, And the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. The battle and its results are told to us with unusual brevity. Three verses. They went out, they had a battle, here are the results. This is Israel's largest civil war. In some ways, this is the conclusion of stuff that was brewing in chapter 15 and even before. This is a great victory against the dark side and for the Lord. Think of the David and Goliath story. A battle scene which is described to us in 58 verses. And this one, equally important perhaps, is just told in three Why such a short record of something that is so important? Well, its brevity raises the significance and importance of everything else that happens in this long chapter. Tuck that away. The battle is not the focus of this chapter, important as it was. But let's not rush from the battle scene just yet. Let's glean what we can from these three verses. 20,000 killed. Can you imagine what that looks like? David's army may have been 10,000 or less. There's no mention of casualties on his side. He surely had some, but not enough to make the headlines of the Jerusalem news. It was a massive victory And it was a curious victory because verse 8 says the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. What the heck does that mean? For starters, it means that the topography of that area area in that day, 3,000 years ago, was different than it is today. You don't look on a map and see a giant forest today, but apparently it was there, and that shouldn't be shocking or problematic for us. We have fossils of sea creatures up high in our Sandia Mountains. Topography changes. 
But how did the forest devour more people than the sword? You could imagine a human explanation, maybe. It must have been some seriously treacherous terrain. Rocks, thick, shrubs and thorns. Perhaps in a mass retreat, there was stumbling in the thick brush. And perhaps there was a pile of men, like you see at some of those European soccer games. People trampled underfoot. Perhaps they ran off a cliff or into a deep marsh. Perhaps there's something supernatural going on here in this vague description of the forest devoured people more than the sword did. I can't help but think that Treebeard is in there somewhere. <laughs> that God for a day turned this forest into the fire swamp. There are creatures of what do they call rodents of unusual size in there perhaps? Just this day, just for a little bit. I don't know. We're not told. It's as if the narrator is as mystified as we are. The forest devoured more than the sword that day. Whatever that means. Yeah, but don't forget, 17 verse 14. God had ordained Absalom's defeat whether by forest or by sword. So what of Absalom himself? Well, thirdly, we see a rebel in a tree. A rebel in a tree, verse 9. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. With that theological comment in chapter 17, verse 14, that God had ordained Absalom's ruin, you can't help but sense a wink here in this verse when the writer tells us that Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. This is no happenstance. He happened to get his head caught in a tree. It doesn't explicitly say that it was Absalom's famous flowing long hair that got caught in the tree, but that certainly is possible. You might remember back in chapter 14, we were introduced to Absalom, and there we found out that he was the most handsome man in all Jerusalem and famous for it. He would get a haircut once a year, and then he would weigh the hair that was cut off and brag about it. Even exaggerate it, perhaps. You can imagine that whether he's at home in the palace or out in a military campaign, it matters not. Each night he gets out the golden brush and 200 strokes on each side. <laughs> he uses conditioner. He stole the hearts of all the people of Israel, we were told once. He graced the cover of GQ more than anyone else. And how ironic if now his hair was his undoing. But whether it was the hair or not, just the same, he is stuck in a tree. Helpless, defenseless. He can't protect himself. He can't free himself. How humiliating. Like a human piñata. Without your men around to help you be free, and with David's men finding you. The symbolism is rich. 
when it says he's suspended between heaven and earth. He's as good as dead, but not yet dead. His mule, which was the ride of kings in those days, that's why Jesus in his triumphal entry rode in on a mule. His mule, it says, has gone out from underneath him. The kingly throne or mule, in this case, has slipped out from underneath him as easily and quickly as he apprehended the throne for himself. So much more quickly does it slide out from underneath him and is gone because the Lord ordained to bring harm to Absalom. And that's where this story ends up. Let's skip ahead to his fate. And then we'll come back to exactly how it happened in just a bit. Skip to verse 14. Joab took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet and the uh, troops came back from pursuing Israel for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. Uh, sorry. And all Israel fled, every one to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name. And it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Absalom's burial was that of a cursed man because that's what he was. Deuteronomy 21, 23 says, Cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. And Absalom's burial was like other wicked men in Scripture whose life ended on a tree. Like the king of Ai. In Joshua 8, he was hanged on a tree and then buried in a pit with many stones thrown on top. In Joshua 10, five enemy kings were all killed and buried the same way, hanged on a tree and buried under a heap of stones. It's the death and burial of the cursed. And this heap of stones was Absalom's true memorial. He pathetically had made a monument to himself at one point in his life, a pillar, we're told. And then we're told this little bit of information here at this point because there's a contrast of two monuments. One self-made and pathetic and the other is the true one, the real one, signifying a cursed man underneath. By the way, this is the way of every tyrant and every antichrist in history. However promising they at times look and however boastful they sometimes speak, the end is the same, even if it's not quite in a tree and and under rocks like this. But, I mean, you just pick one. Hitler talked about a, a Reich lasting a thousand years. And less than 20 years later, he was alone in a bunker with a gun, and it was done. That's how it ends. 
But let's back up now and focus on that one who brought about Absalom's death, Joab. It's important to know this because Joab did what David did not want. So fourth, we have a general on his own. A general on his own. Look at verse 10 and following. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What, you saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver in a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, For my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And then ten young men finished him off when he was on the ground. Joab is a practical man. Always a practical man. He was willing to obey his king when Uriah needed to be rubbed out lest he find out about the adultery. But Joab here ignores the king's orders, probably not because he was more just than David, but because he practically knew that there is only one way that this could have had any kind of resolve To end the rebellion, you had to cut off the head of the rebellion, the lead rebel. There was no going back to the good old days. There was no room for sentimentality. There was going to be no reconciliation between father and son. And David was too sentimental to see any of that. Now, the passage doesn't give us any explicit moral evaluation about who is more right and who is more wrong. David or Joab. Joab was wrong to disobey his king, but he was right about what was necessary, about what needed to be done. A commentator, a scholar on the Samuel books, Ralph Davis, he writes, David would treat cancer with candy, but the Davidic state can be sound only by radically cutting out the growth. Joab is wrong and right. He's rebellious and reasonable. He lacks subordination, but not sense. He's a general on his own. Fifth, there are messengers on the run. Messengers on the run. Starting in verse 19 and following, we read of these messengers. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. Joab said to him, you're not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, go tell the king what you've seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. 
So he said to him, run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king. And the king said, if he's alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gate and said, see another man running alone. The king said, he also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. The king said, he's a good man and comes with good news. And Ahimaaz cried out to the king, all is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, blessed be the Lord your God, who's delivered up the men who raised their hand against my Lord the king. And the king said, is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, when Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. The king said, turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite came. And the Cushite said, Good news for my lord, the king. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. And the king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. Messengers on the run. Notice how much space is devoted to the drama of these messengers coming to David. Remember, the battle was told to us in three verses. Absalom's death was told to us in about ten verses. And now you even have more space devoted to the news getting to David. My best guess on why is that the writer wants us to feel the suspense and drama in David's sandals. He wants us to feel what David was longing for and waiting for and kept waiting for. There's David sitting on the gate looking for messengers with a watchman. They see one messenger, then another. What does it mean? Who will get there first? We can feel David's optimism in verse 27. He's a good man. He brings good news. I know it. I hope it. I hope so. Incidentally, to carry good news, that phrase is used throughout here, or carry news, that's the Old Testament Hebrew equivalent of the New Testament gospel, to preach good news. It's a verb. To, to gospelize people in the New Testament is this Old Testament word here, Translated, carry good news. In the Old Testament, that word is given to us about 30 times total. Nine of them are here in this passage. You can't help but think of Isaiah 52 and Romans 10. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. They're beautiful because a watchman would be watching and see a messenger coming and he could tell oftentimes by the way he ran whether it was good news or bad news. And when it was good news, you could see it and it was beautiful because beautiful news was coming. Well, for David, is this good news or bad news? It should have been good news. 
The messengers sure thought that they were coming with good news. That's why Ahimaaz could not wait to go. They said, all is well. Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered up the enemy who raised their hand against my Lord the King. Praise him, thank him, bless him. God has done it. All is well. There's peace. But David, shockingly, doesn't respond to any of that news and only asks about his son. My boy, my boy Absalom, how's he? Ahimaaz either legitimately doesn't know about Absalom's death or is too scared to bring the news himself. So David waits for the Cushite, a Gentile, by the way. The Gentile Cushite comes with good news as well. Good news for my lord the king. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. Again, David doesn't receive that news or pay much attention to it. He only asks about his son, my boy, Absalom. And the Cushite answered David with words that were true, but also instructive. May the enemies of my Lord the King and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. What he did was evil. It was against the Lord and against his king. I want every one of those kind of enemies to go down and be defeated. We might once again here want to sympathize with David as simply a father concerned about his son. But he is not just a father. And Absalom was no typical wayward son. Civil war had torn apart the kingdom. It is God's kingdom that was torn apart because of Absalom's sin. And God had now given victory to the promised king and defeated this Old Testament antichrist, Absalom. But David doesn't respond to that with praise, with thanks. He doesn't ask about the state of his men or how many casualties there were. He doesn't even acknowledge the good news of the messengers. For David at this point, good news is only defined by Absalom's well-being and bad news is only defined by Absalom's harm. So sixthly, he's a father in deep despair. A father in deep despair. How does David respond to the news of his son's death? Verse 33. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, oh Absalom, my son, my son. Now we know from chapter 17, verse 14, that God had ordained to bring harm to the wicked Absalom. But David's concern was not for what God wanted or what God manifestly accomplished. He only gave orders to deal gently with Absalom and then obsessed. Is it well with him? He should have been praising God like these messengers were. Even a Gentile Cushite was showing the king what he should have said and how he should have responded. But the king was 
weeping and wailing with a kind of grief that wasn't typical for David. We've seen this king grieve before. At the death of Saul and Jonathan in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel. There David wept. He mourned. He grieved. And he wrote a song. At the death of his newborn in 2 Samuel 12. David prayed. David wept. He fasted for a time. And then he went on. David's mourning here in chapter 18 is unique and unusual for how elemental it is. It's unique for being so private. Verse 33 tells us that he went up to the chamber over the gate. No doubt people could hear him. That's clear later on. But there's something unique about David going away to mourn. All the other times David has grieved in the past, it's with people. It's around people. They observe it. They can see it. They're doing it with him. This is private. It's unique for it not having any worship or prayer to it. It has no theology to it. It's inarticulate. We can't even get a feel for exactly what David was feeling other than raw grief. Was David solely grieving the death and loss of a son? Or was he also reflecting on how sad this whole thing has been? From the rape of Tamar and the murder of Amnon to Absalom's exile and rebellion and now his death. Was he possibly even reflecting on his own sin? Being his part in bringing all this chaos and commotion and sin and heartbreak upon himself, upon his family, and upon the nation. Well, we don't know about any of that because David didn't tell us anything about that. It's elemental. But seventhly, we see a kingdom in disarray. A kingdom in disarray because of this mourning king. Look at chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. It was told Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city. They snuck into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face. The king cried with a loud voice, oh, my son, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines, because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. This is a kingdom in disarray. Because of its king. 
and because of his mourning. Joab is fierce here. Joab exaggerates a bit here. But Joab is right. David's wailing made his men come home, not in victory and celebration, but in embarrassment. It's as if they came home feeling like they failed, like it should be a loss, not a win. And yet they came home after risking their lives for the king and for the kingdom. Some of their their friends and soldiers were left on the battlefield that day. And they hear the king alone in his quarters, weeping and wailing, not for those soldiers, but for the enemy. Not thanking God, not celebrating the victory he has wrought. They, They feel like fools. They sneak in like they stole stuff. So Joab's speech to David is fierce and it's right. It's needed. And it works. Sorta. Sorta. Our last point, a king on his throne. Verse 8. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. That is a really unsatisfying ending. And in some ways, this is an ending. Yes, I know the story goes on. We'll look at more verses in the story of chapter 19 next week, Lord willing. But this is the literary ending here in chapter 19, verse 8. Because the passage back in chapter 18 began with David standing at the gate as he sent off the troops. And then David, when he hears the loss of Absalom, he goes up from the gate to mourn in a private quarters. But then in chapter 19, verse 8, he comes down to take his seat at the gate once again. You could call the story David at the Gate. It's not a clever story or interesting title, David at the Gate, but that's really what this is. So verse 8 is a literary ending, and yet it's so unsatisfying and anticlimactic. When David is sitting at the gate there, it's, it's not really a throne, but it is the place of rule for this nomadic king and his people. So Joab's speech worked. It got David out of his prayer room, or cry room, you could say. Got David to wipe his nose, to dab his eyes, and to sit in front of the people and be seen. But more than that is needed. Joab told David in verse 7, Arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. Encourage them. Celebrate with them. Pray for them. Praise God with them. But David goes out. And he sits down. And apparently he says nothing. It's good enough because it gets the troops to not be so concerned. But it's not good enough. David was passive from the beginning to the end of this story. Starting with saying, you guys tell me what to do. I'll do whatever you say. Either come, either go, whatever. My only request is that you be nice to Absalom. And here, after getting a talking to from his general, 
David does what he needs to do, but just barely, just enough so that things settle down, but not enough so that there is corporate praise and celebration and thanks and warm hearts like there is sometimes in so many post-war celebrations. A better king is needed. You know, times like this, I, I really dislike King David. I mean, if we were going through the Psalms right now on Sunday mornings together, or even just reading them and coming across Psalms of David, our hearts would be knit to him, the great psalmist of Israel. We would want to be like him. We would think, That's, this is a godly guy, and rightly so. And yet there are portions in 2 Samuel where you grit your teeth you think, you've got to be kidding me. He's a better king than Saul was. He's a better king than Absalom would have been. But we still need a better king. And praise God, that king, that son of David, Jesus, the Christ, he came. And he is a better king. I'll tell you what. I don't know about you. I hope if you're a Christian, this is true of you as well. I've never read in the gospel account something about Jesus and gritted my teeth and think, you've got to be kidding me, some king you are. The more I read of him, the sweeter it gets, the more I love him. He's the true king. He's never let me down. I don't know about you. But where do we see him in 2 Samuel 18 and 19? Well, in some ways we don't. Because 2 Samuel 18 and 19 leave us longing for this better king. And he's not here yet. Not in 2 Samuel 18. Where we can see something of Jesus in our passage today is only in upside down ways. So let me offer a few to you. Absalom was a cursed man who deserved to die the death of the cursed. But in Galatians 3... We read that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus bore the curse of sin and death upon that tree, the cross. Not because he was cursed or deserved to be cursed, but because we were the cursed. And we deserved to die just like Absalom did. We're all rebels. He bore our curse for us. David grieved because of his son's sin, perhaps because of his own sin, which led to countless pains and sorrows. But David could do nothing to remove his grief or his guilt or his son's guilt. But we read of the Lord Jesus he bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. We don't have any reason to fear, to worry, or to mourn like those who don't have hope. David wished that he could have died in the place of his son. Chapter 18, verse 33. But both father and son were guilty. Both deserved to die, and both eventually died. 
But Jesus, the innocent, no, the righteous, he died for our guilt that we might live. David couldn't be his son's sin bearer. But the true son of David was a sin bearer for all those who would believe that it's true and call out to him to have it. David had compassion without justice. Joab was all about justice without any compassion. In the here and now, sometimes we have to choose which one is more right in a given situation, justice or mercy. But in the Lord Jesus and him upon the cross, justice and mercy kissed. They're reconciled. It never happens in this world, but it did upon the cross. And there God proved to be just and the justifier. Not the dismisser of sins. He's just. But not just the punisher of sins. He justifies and justifies the wicked. He justifies any and all who will believe that he is just and does justify and who will call out to him to receive that as a gift. Have you ever done that? You ever confessed to him that you know you're a sinner and you believe Jesus died on the cross for sins and that he offers you grace on account of his death and resurrection? Have you ever told God that you believe that and you want to receive it? You can today if you haven't before. David, for a time, it would seem, loved his son more than God himself. Let us beware. At times like this, we must remember that Jesus said, He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Is it wrong to grieve the loss of a son or a daughter or a father or a mother or to grieve their sin? Is it wrong to grieve because a loved one has died in unbelief and is now likely in hell? Certainly not. But it can be wrong. It can be wrong. Not all grief is godly grief. Other passages in the Bible teach us how to grieve in godly grief. But 2 Samuel 18 is not one of them. It shows us how not to grieve. We must not grieve in a way that cuts God out of the picture. We must not grieve in a way that sides more with the rebel that we love than the one they've rebelled against. We may grieve unbelief in the reality of hell, but we must firmly, finally side with God, not loved ones who have sinned against him and have received justice for his righteousness and for his honor's sake. Let us side with God. And let us side with God running alongside the Cushite who's bringing news. 
We're messengers. We're ambassadors. The king, he doesn't call for us, for him to get news. But our king sent us out with his news, true news. We call it good news, but keep in mind, not everyone will think it's good news. It'll be good news to those who receive it. Christ is the king, and he reigns forever and ever. And he welcomes those sinners who will come to him with mercy and reconciliation. But if you refuse that, the king and his reign is not good news. It is trouble for you. And one day you will recognize it. You will bow before him to your peril. Oh, how we wish you would bow before him now in worship and in joy and in faith. But Christian, let's not be surprised that our news will be good to some and bad to others. Like Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2, we Christians have a fragrance about us. We are the fragrance or the aroma of Christ to this world and for some, we are a fragrance of death. And for some, we are a fragrance from life to life. Let us not forget this week that we are to emit a fragrance of Christ in this world as messengers for the King. What is good news? What is bad news? Do you have God's perspective on it? You must. You must. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are such a good, kind, and righteous king. We thank you for a passage like this that helps us to join with longing with the saints of old for a better king to come and helps us to smile and marvel and give thanks and praise to you that you have come. Only you can. Only you have awakened our souls so that the news of your coming is good and not bad. We thank you for it. We pray it would spread here this morning. We thank you for the good news that you are just and the justifier. Help us now to sing about that with joy, with faith, with awe, with celebration. Help us to sing about it as though it is true for each of us individually, if it is. We thank you in Jesus' name, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.